Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by the Kathleen Metcalf. Good morning to you. I think it's the right time zone. Good morning <laughs> in my time zone, thank you. Yeah, listen, Kathleen, who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do? So I live in Vermont in the United States in a beautiful little town. And uh, I'm, uh, I run a real estate coaching and training company for real estate agents in North America, really the United States and Canada, who have administrative support people on their team. So it's usually the top 10 to 25% of the agents that reach that level of volume where they have a team. And so I've uh, been a real estate agent and I've been a real estate assistant. And so my worlds came together to be able to offer support for that. Um, before I was in real estate, I have a whole career in recruiting and training in the retail industry. So when these things all collided, I realized, oh, I could help these people. <laughs> what do you love about it out of interest? I mean, what what's is it, is it the people side or the, the product side or the sales side? What, what floats your boat? It's primarily the people side. And the interesting thing is I'm gathering more people on my team to help with even more of the technical side of things. But a big part of who I am is for people to come into really having satisfying work. I never wanted to work <laughs> when I was a kid. I'm an only child and I really didn't want for anything. You know, I had a nice middle class, you know, family. I had a nice school system. I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, outside Philadelphia. And I, my mother said, you have to go to work if you want spending money. And I went to the mall, you know, and got a job at the limited retail store. And I loved it. I couldn't believe how much I loved working. I loved the clothes and I liked learning about it and helping people. And so that really changed the trajectory of my curiosity and interest in work. So extrapolate that, you know, all these years later, this is my second business I've owned. And when I saw and heard, I should see more, it was heard. So I worked for a real estate coach for six years as her assistant here in Vermont. And I listened to her coach, 65 top producing agents a week. And I kept hearing, when are you going to hire your new assistant and how are you going to get your prospecting done? And I was sitting across, you know, a very big room in my own little corner of the room thinking, wow, I have got to be able to help these people because they could not reach their goals if they did not have proper support. And so I am just a problem solver. You know what I mean? So I just kind of chewed on that and came up with, I think I could help them. And so my boss said, would you, you know, so I started doing my business with a three ring binder standing over her washer dryer in her laundry room, talking to people, you know, with a headset on about hiring and training. And it just blossomed from there. It just totally took off. And she, and she was so happy for me. She's like, yes, you should go do that. What is it? Is it the organizing side you like, or is it the being efficient or what is it? Um, 
There's several layers of that. Uh, one of which is I don't like to see people suffer unnecessarily. So I'm compelled from the relationship side of things to let me relieve that for you. The other is I saw and I enjoyed being a real estate admin in particular. I, I liked being a real estate agent, um, but it was it's very, very demanding. Depending, on, I wish I knew then what I know now about how to manage my real estate practice. I would have been happier then. Um, but I, I also saw that in order for everybody to reach their goals, this structure needs to be in place. And it's a fantastic career opportunity for an admin to really be side by side with an entrepreneur building a business without the risk of being the owner. And then from an organizational standpoint, there, it, the, the salespeople who get this successful Many of them do not plan to actually build a business and have checklists. Like, that's not what they do. They're salespeople, right? So they like to make the connection. They like to make the deal. And then once they get the deal, they like to go make another deal. And so this is not really their forte. And it, when I got into real estate, I had been a recruiter for many years. And I saw, oh, this is the same thing. This is the connection between people and property, just like I used to be a connector between people and jobs oh, I can do this. <laughs> and so I guess I'm still doing it. I'm still connecting you know, people to a solution in being able to create some uh, rhythm in their business so that they can really spend more time and energy taking care of these people who are buying and selling the clients because people usually buy and sell real estate for five reasons. One of five reasons. They're getting married. They're getting divorced. They're having a baby someone died, or they are relocating for a job. So these are life events, some of them extremely stressful. And so um, a, a very successful real estate agent and their staff is really an oasis in the midst of that chaos for being able to take care of people so that they have as easy a time in doing one of the largest financial transactions sometimes of their lives so it has a lot of responsibility in it. So if there's chaos on the team and there's chaos in the client's lives, oh, it's very, it's very painful. <laughs> so I do like to be able to get in there and create those layers and that structure so that people can really enjoy their work and take care of people in a way that makes a big difference for them during that time that they're working together. It really makes sense, I suppose, from, a, you know, celebrating each other's skill sets that, you know, someone's value set is organization, structure, whatever, checklists, yes. and then someone else's people, values, sales, what, you know, that side. So why not? It sounds like a lovely mix to bring the two together. Exactly. So it really is that symbiotic, I need you, you need me. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, inside of that is all of the, I don't understand you because you're not like me, right? So we don't get away from that. Uh, but it's, it, it is definitely the definition of having a, an entrepreneur, a, a visionary, someone who is driving to achieve, and then someone who is equally suited to mm -hmm. organize, implement, create consistency, deliver quality service, um, it is a perfect relationship in that regard. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to hearing more here. So tell me, what, what does fire in the belly mean to you before we get into it? Oh, gosh, I have it. So I really relate it to the, the title of your podcast. For me, fire in the belly is an unceasing desire to 
express something, do something, achieve something, uh, help something. And um, I have had that since I can remember the first time I started the cleanup club, I think I was eight <laughs> in my neighborhood. And I used to, you know, teach uh, my friends, uh, little brothers, sisters in the summer break, you know, uh, the alphabet and, you know, things like that about animals. And so it really is a drive that in many ways I cannot even explain. I do not know where it comes from. I just have learned to have enormous respect for it and be able to see, you know, what's next? How do I follow through to, 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 to get that to fruition? It's that, it, you know, and I love that you say, you know, that's unceasing. It's the, it's, is a it persistence, you know, and that drive to go forward all the time? Yes. And that is also sort of a mystery to, to me because I have had any number of uh, failures, disappointments, um, uh, catastrophes is a, a little dramatic. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had failure. I've had big failures in, in different aspects of my life. And I have recovered and stumbled through that. And even when I wanted to give up and even when I didn't, I, I sort of lost way of my, my mission, so to speak, it would still come back. And so when I started this business, I'm going into my uh, ninth year, I laughed at myself because I was like, well, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> I'm going to do it again. Uh, I just haven't been able to keep the entrepreneur you know, down. I've had jobs. I've had careers. I've had wonderful uh, opportunities to work with other people in nice companies. And then this has always popped back up. And so I finally have surrendered, you know, even in 2019, I mentioned to you before we started that I have been looking for people to work with, people to collaborate with. I just have felt like I'm not supposed to do this all by myself. And so last year I sold my company to uh, some Canadian investors and it tanked in seven months. <laughs> and you know, one day they just said, yeah, we're, we're, we're done. We're done funding this. And I was like, oh my gosh. And, you know, I had lawyers and contracts and then they gave it back to me. And so I took my company back and then I wanted to give up. And the old coach, you know, the coach that I used to work for, my old boss uh, has since uh, retired now, uh, but she coached me for free for a couple of months to like, okay, come on, you know, like get back on the horse. And I cried and resisted and, but I did it in four months and I was able to get it back. And so that, that resiliency to keep going when it's hard, when you want to give up, you know, one of the biggest lessons I've learned about that is to ask for help and to realize that I, I am not supposed to figure this out all by myself. And that has been one of the most enormous relieving revelations I have learned in my career and in my life is to really get to, okay, I still want to do it. I still want to go forward. I don't really know how to do that. <laughs> Are you generally good at taking your own temperature? I mean, do you, can you assess where you're at or does it always take that external reflection? Uh, there's kind of a, well, there's kind of a loaded answer in that, um, that I really learned that lesson in uh, 2001 um, when I realized that I had a drinking problem. 
And that's one of the biggest, you know, uh, crashes in my life. And I, I'm so grateful for it now because it taught me a series of uh, lessons about how to live that I did not have before. I did not ask for help. Uh, I thought I knew more than I did. I mean, I, uh, I'm sure that people can relate to feeling like I had goals and I was going to make things happen and I was determined to create what I wanted. It was very willful. And so in that willfulness, I didn't listen to my intuition. I didn't really take my own temperature from that perspective. I really then reacted to the external consequences. And even then I would shot over that a number of times because my determination was so willful. And in the deconstruction of my life, which I don't think it was any big coincidence it happened right after September 11th, 2001, where so much you know, uh, reflection was happening about, wow, where, where are we as a world? Where are we as a country? You know, look at what's happened. Look at um, in the, the sadness that I actually went back to see a therapist to tell her, all right, this is what's really going on in my life. And I had seen her um, seven years before. And... Um, she said, you know, you're, you're, you're in trouble <laughs> and I'll help you if you want. And so that was one of the first ways of sort of realizing, like, I don't really know what I'm doing and I make it a mess and I don't want this to be true, but here's the deal. And so when I shared a story with her about being at a women entrepreneur uh, business dinner in someone's home. And on the side table in the dining room was a you know cocktail bar. And I can't tell you the conversation that was happening at the table because I was having a conversation in my head that said, well, should I have red wine or white wine? And if I have one glass, I'm probably going to want another glass. And then I could have you know sparkling water in between. <laughs> and when I told my therapist that I was having this conversation, about trying to control my drinking, she said to me, people who don't have a drinking problem uh, don't have that conversation. People who don't have a drinking problem don't try to control their drinking. They don't need to control their drinking. People who have to control their drinking may need to look at that. And um, I grew up with a father who, who drank too much. Uh, I would call him an alcoholic. I'm not sure he ever, ever called himself an alcoholic. And so I never wanted to be like him and then I realized, so I was uh, 40 in 2001, yeah, that while I didn't look, my alcoholism didn't look like my father's alcoholism, I still tried to control my drinking. I still made uh, what we refer to in recovery as jackpots. I still got into jackpots that I had to get out of. And I didn't really know how to live not drinking. I didn't really. I grew up watching that. That was just normal. It's completely normal. But the consequences were, were not acceptable anymore. So, um, so she helped me get out. And then I started to get involved, you know, in, in recovery. And that's really how I learned to take my temperature. That's really how I learned to accept responsibility for the fact that I was doing this. No one was making this. My history wasn't making me do this. Now it was my responsibility. What am I going to do about it? What kind of life do I want to live? So it was really at 40 <laughs> that I was reborn into how am I doing? 
How are my relationships? Who is that who I want to be in this situation? That began a whole new journey. How long had that been going on? I drank from the time I was 15 until I was 40. So I drank for 25 years. And I drank socially what many people would think. And I could go periods of time without drinking. And so, you know, I refer to it as binge drinking or just drinking that once I started to drink, it would uh, escalate and it would, I would change. I would say things I regretted. I would do things I regretted. I uh, would do things I didn't want to think about. I would. And so while that may happen to all kinds of, you know, people who don't have alcoholism, um, it, it did turn out to be alcoholism for me. Would you describe that as a, a cause or an, or an effect? Alcoholism? I mm. consider it a disease and um, both chemical and uh, spiritual, um, perhaps also uh, mental certainly impacts that. But I there is a long lineage mm. of uh, alcoholism in my family on both sides, my mother's and my father's side. And um, <clears throat> while it may be considered, you know, just normal and acceptable, it, it um, created consequences in my life that were no longer acceptable to me. It was, it was horrendous. Um, I understand why they used to, you know, lock people up in psych wards who had alcoholism because um, you, you know, looked crazy, felt crazy. And um, to be able to have a life that I really wanted, I knew that that was something eventually that I recognized needed to be addressed. And so, um, yeah, I consider it to be something that once the alcohol is in my body, it changes my chemical. Um, it's um, an, an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. <clears throat> and so, until I learned about that and I learned uh, about what, how that could impact me and how I would, you know, be able to live with it. Because in many ways, it's like living with diabetes or living with cholesterol. Um, you just live with it. And so when I was in early recovery, um, what we refer to as an, an old timer, someone who'd been sober a long time said to me, that little voice that says to you, hey, wouldn't it a really nice glass of wine go well with that? You know, like that little voice doesn't ever go away. You just learn to not do what it tells you anymore. And I thought as a newcomer, that was a terrible thing to say. That was just a cruel thing to say to a newcomer. I'm so grateful <laughs> that that person, you know, brought that to my awareness because yes, still, you know, when my husband, um, uh, who is okay with me sharing with the world that he too um, is uh, is in recovery from uh, from drinking? That when he asked me, you know, um, well, you know, I want to drink with dinner. That thought still still sometimes runs by, like, oh, a really nice red wine would be good with this. But I guess I'll have sparkling water. <laughs> um, and so it just is more evidence that you cannot control your first thought, but you have every opportunity to control your second thought and what kind of action are you going to take to not be on robot, to not be on autopilot all the time with letting those um, 
you know, sort of primal uh, urges of life be the thing that runs you through through your life. And for me, that's one of the things that I just have to be savvy to and and take care of in my life so that I'm able to make conscious choices that do not, you know, put me back in the ditch, so to speak. Out of curiosity, I mean, is it is it basically a principle of absolute abstinence? It's just don't even go there. There's no sort of, there's no halfway house. There's no just one glass. It's nope. absolute. No, no. Nope. I've, I've tried that. <clears throat> you know, um, the, the last seven years of my drinking from 1994 to 2001 um, had the, the most persistent consequences. So I um, had tried to get, get sober, um, get help and still drink sometimes. <laughs> so I actually credit my friend, uh, Barbara, who asked me, what is your sobriety date? And I said, I don't have one. And she said, why? I said, cause sometimes I drink. She says, how's that working for you? I go, it's not very well. It's not really working at all. And, um, so that was when I, uh, went back to the therapist and said, all right, you know, I'm totally, I'm totally I'm totally baloney myself, you know, like I, I really need to get honest about what's really, what's really working, what's really not working. Because in those seven years, I had been fired, uh, gone bankrupt, been evicted, uh, lived um, with friends, uh, couch surfed, had a, an apartment for a month, uh, lived in a residential hotel and ran a consulting business legitimately at the same time. Um, was horrendous. I was full of fear. Some nights I stayed up all night at a diner or all, all night at what used to be Kinko's, you know, which was like an all night kind of office uh, place and, um, and legitimately worked with, with big companies and was a real consultant. But my life was a wreck. And so <clears throat> to be able to feel like I had to be okay on the outside and allow it to be a shambles on the inside and to have the consequences of my life unraveling out of ambition, uh, greed, uh, pride, <laughs> uh, wanting to be in control. I mean, I'm sure people can relate to, you know, all of those which are held in high esteem in many cultures. But at the same time, I was crumbling on the inside and, um, and I was really no longer willing, able uh, to, to let that unravel. And in fact, it was when I saw other women in particular who had been able to control their drinking until they were in their 40s. And that terrified me because look at all the crap that had already happened controlling my drinking. <laughs> I was not interested in going any farther down in the parking garage. I felt like I had already hit like the fourth level of the underground parking garage. And I was not interested in the sixth level. I was ready to step off the elevator and say, all right, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. And so that started a whole journey of, okay, what am I responsible for? How do I, how do I make a different choice? How do I know you know, sort of like that um, old adage of having a devil and an angel, you know, one on each shoulder, like which one am I listening to really? And, and what do I really want in my life? Because I think too, you know, it has been my observation that at each decade in life, 20s, 30s, 40s, now 50s, and I'll be, I'll be 60 in February, 
which is very sobering. <laughs> it's very sobering to look that in the face. I see, you know, new awarenesses, right, about, well, what am I doing? What have I achieved, right? So there's a time of reflection. So I also think that was very well-timed at my at my age of 40 at the time to be like, what am I doing? If I say I want to be so successful, I, I really want to be wealthy. Why do I want to be wealthy? Am I trying to, you know, grow in status? And so I really had a lot of reflection about what success looked like and what I thought wealth and achievement was for. And I'm doing that again now, right, 20 years later of I really want to be able to make a difference. I really want to be able to help people. It's one of the main motivations for me to come talk to you is that I think that my story has hope and encouragement um, and that people can relate to whatever they can and use that for themselves. And I still have ambition. <laughs> I still you know, have uh, many things I want to achieve, but now... It's from the fire in the belly, right? That I just now respect. And so, okay, it's still it's still burning. So I'm still going. And it's more and more about how I can make a difference. How can I help others? Than it is about the fact that I'm fine. I didn't die when I failed. I didn't die when I went bankrupt. I didn't die when I, uh, I, I lost all my possessions that were in a storage unit that were auctioned off, which they made a TV show out of, which I cannot watch. But, you know, I didn't die. It wasn't the end of the world. Um, it was terrible. I wouldn't recommend it. But I was still me. And in fact, I can now see, and I actually saw it shortly thereafter, when I had nothing. I learned I was someone. I wasn't my money. I wasn't my apartment. I wasn't my car. I wasn't my job. I wasn't my relationships. I wasn't my retirement account. I, I was just a person, just a regular person. I wasn't better than anyone and I wasn't worse than anyone. And that is an experience that I really wouldn't trade. It was so valuable because I always was striving to feel good about myself, fearing that people would see the truth, would really know how insecure I was, would really know that I, you know, had the imposter syndrome, you know, probably from the time I was 12 and that I'm, it's okay to have warts and all, as you say, you know, in your preparation materials, that it's just human. And there's nothing to be ashamed of for being human. What a relief that was. I can imagine even in your voice, you can see it and big smile. And, you know, <laughs> it's it's like just letting all the baggage down and just go, listen. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Why did you drink? Uh, because I was happy, because I was sad, uh, because it was uh, the thing to do, because it was completely normal, natural, practically trained to do it. Our mm -hmm. society, you know, has it as, you know, something that you do. Uh, I love food. I love cooking. I love all of that. And so it pairs beautifully. In fact, that has been the, I would say the thing I miss the most is the flavors. And, um, Interestingly enough, when I was in early recovery, 
I had closed my consulting business in the summer of 2001 and uh, September 11th happened. And in that time from 2001, I think into 2002, I worked at Starbucks as a barista and a supervisor because it was around the corner from my apartment. And I was so grateful for the fact that they actually have a little book when you work in the store called a passport. And you're to learn all the coffees and all the teas so that you can help customers decide, you know, what they want to buy, what they'd like to try. And it was an incredibly um, happy distraction <laughs> from the fact that I no longer had, you know, Merlot and Cabernet and Pinot Grigio and bourbon <laughs> and all those, all those other flavors. And so you know, so coffee and tea and all those things took its place. But it's just, it's just a natural thing for someone who particularly um, has alcoholism or grew up in an alcoholic home. It's just completely normal. Yeah, it's habit. Is it habit? It's routine it's habit. structure. Yeah. 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 And so, but it's also, you know, no different than, you know, learning the habit of stretching in the morning or, walking or choosing whole grain bread over white bread, you know, like it's, it's just, it just makes a habit change. Hmm. It's, it is hard in the beginning, which is why it's so much easier to stay sober than get sober. Um, but I, you know, in those seven years, I drank, <clears throat> um, worked with professionals and tried and stayed sober. That was much harder than the last 19 years of not drinking. One day at a time, one situation at a time, just choosing to live a sober life, it's okay. I got married sober. I buried my mother sober. I, you know, have um, been through difficulties and had celebrations. It's, it's okay. You know, it, it, life goes on with great celebration. Yeah, makes sense. Take us back a bit. Talk to us about mini Kathleen. Ah, so I... Uh, I'm an only child um, from my uh, original parents. My mother later married, and so I gained two sisters. But my the first 33 years of my life, I was an only child and really wanted. My parents were married 17 years before I, I was born. So my mother went through the 1950s without a baby because um, she they couldn't figure out uh, how, to, how to help her. And so they finally figured that out in 1960. So in 1961, I was born. And um, so I was really wanted as as a baby and as a, as a child, as a person. So I never doubted that. Um, unfortunately, my father came back from World War II. Uh, he was in the army. He fought in Germany and I believe also in France. And um, I would imagine that what he had was undiagnosed and untreated post-traumatic stress disorder. And I would also imagine he, uh, from my observation, had depression. And so his alcoholism was a, a method of treatment in many ways, his drinking was. And so that created enormous unhappiness in my parents' marriage. But they stayed married. And um, I, my, so my parents are from um, New England in the United States, from um, Connecticut and um, Vermont. And they were in Canada when I was born. They um, were partners in a grocery store with a friend. And so I was born in Canada of American parents. So for some time I had dual citizenship, but I um, 
So I have a Canadian birth certificate, but a United States passport since I'm a citizen here. And um, I grew up in um, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and then spent uh, kindergarten through the end of high school in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, outside Philadelphia, which was a really great place to grow up. I lived in a nice neighborhood and uh, am still connected on Facebook with some of my childhood friends, which is wonderful to see them. And um, my mother moved a lot with her mother and father. And uh, her father left them and went to find gold out west. I'm not sure what that when that would have been, the 20s or the 30s. She was born in 25, so I guess it was probably in the 30s. And so my mother didn't want me to have the life she had. So she stayed married to my father until I graduated high school. And I lived in the same house, went to the same school district uh, for all of all those years. At the time, I didn't understand why she stayed with him and why she we had to be so unhappy. But as an adult, I looked back and realized, oh, not everyone really had that, what I had. And what a sacrifice in many ways that was for her. So she and I worked that out later in, in life. But my father's drinking was very prominent in the house. You know, he, you know, didn't come to school functions. He would fall asleep at the dining room table. He would fall asleep behind the wheel with the car running in the driveway. He would fall asleep. We had a split level entry home on the stairs on the way up. It was, it was, um, tragic and it was embarrassing as I got to be a teenager. So I didn't really, I didn't, you know, I really resented that in many ways. Um, but when my, my parents split, when I graduated high school, my mother and I moved to Florida. My father stayed in New Jersey uh, to work and my mother was very calculated. Um, and I did have quite a bit of respect for her because she really figured out he had, um, you know, his life in New Jersey to finish. He got an apartment. My mother um, and I had the house and I went to college um, uh, in Tampa, just a short drive away. And she let him know, this is it. <laughs> when you go back to New Jersey, we're, we're done. And um, it was really handled as best I think that she could have figured out. So I was taken care of. My dad had a job in an apartment. She had a house and they worked it all out. And it was really quite amicable. And, you know, life took on a new, a new vein. And I had mentioned, you know, that when I was a teenager, my mother said, if you want spending money, you need to go get a, a job. And so she helped me, you know, drive me to the mall and all of that. But part of that was because my father's drinking had gotten him fired. And so there was financial difficulty in the house. And while my mother sheltered me from most of that, she was also like, you know, there's some reality here, girl, that I need you to be aware of. And I think that was really one of the first times that I started to realize I had some role to play. I had some responsibility because otherwise it was pretty carefree in, in that regard. You know, we had we had a, a nice life. It wasn't an, an affluent, extravagant life, but it was perfectly comfortable life. And so I, I also know how fortunate I am that that was my story. But, you know, I was scrawny and insecure and um, what has been called and is probably still used the term I was bossy. And 
what now I get to realize is that was my leadership. <laughs> that was my ambition. That was my fire in the belly at, you know, seven years old that wasn't really channeled and not necessarily highly regarded at that time, you know, in the 60s or even in the early 70s. But, um, you know, I've uh, tried to temper that over the years so that I'm not so bossy anymore, but I do have a point of view and I do have intention of accomplishing things. Um, but I, I don't think I realized as a kid or even as a young professional that um, I was still trying to get ahead and in some ways be better than because I was afraid I was less than. And so that took that took longer than I would have preferred, you know, to, to get through. I, I went to college. I didn't really want to go to college, but this was one of the pieces of advice my dad gave me that I am very grateful I listened to, which is he said to me, you have a lot of ambitions. And if you want to compete in the world, you're going to need a college education. And so you should go. And he helped me go, go to school and I got loans and grants and those kind of things, but he helped. That was part of their settlement agreement that he would help. And he followed through to his word. Um, and it took me five years to graduate in an undergraduate degree. Um, and I'm glad I did, but I didn't really like school. And I just really wanted to work. I just really wanted to work and make money and be independent. Um, and I can still vividly remember I guess I was a senior, I had an apartment by myself. Uh, I lived in the dorms, then I had an apartment with a graduate student, um, she was terrific. And then I had an apartment on my own. And I remember after, you know, my friends and uh, I don't remember if my family helped me move in, but I remember my friends helping me move in. When everyone left and I closed the door, the feeling of, wow, this is my space that I get to feel safe and uh, comfortable and at ease, that this is my environment. And I had never really had that before and loved it. <laughs> Just loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And so, uh, you know, I stayed uh, single for a while my career took off even before I graduated college in, in the retail industry. And I got promoted um, to uh, be a manager in a, in a store. And then I was promoted to be in the training area uh, and moved from Tampa to Fort Lauderdale. And um, then was promoted into recruiting and moved from Fort Lauderdale to Miami. And um, <clears throat> unfortunately, that's also when my drinking sort of took off even more. Uh, but I, I loved the I loved working. I love, I was curious, you know, and so I think that's one of the other elements in here is the curiosity of, well, what's that and what's next? And so that was probably one of the things that got me through college is I just started being more and more curious about the material, the discipline of studying and, you know, going through exams and doing all of that was the harder part for me. But my curiosity, I think, in many ways, has been such a benefit. How was school for you? Is that something you ran into or ran out of? What, what direction were you traveling? So in, in college? Mm. Well, I have a bachelor's degree in business administration. Um, I thought about becoming a teacher. So in high school, when they ask you, you know, when the guidance counselor, what do you want to be? I wanted to be a therapist or a teacher. 
interestingly enough, that is exactly what I do <laughs> in my in my career in business. It just isn't it technically in teaching or in therapy, uh, but in recruiting and in training and development, that's exactly what I what I do. Uh, and as a coach now, that is absolutely what I do. So the desires of my heart found a way to come to fruition. It just didn't look um, as traditional, you know, as I originally may have thought it would. Um, but the the study habits of reading, doing things in advance, not waiting to the last minute, procrastinating, um, those those habits I never developed of really managing myself, you know, in school, those became much harder once I was in college and I was really independent. Um, so I regretted that, but you know, it was what it was. No, it's always, yeah, it's always interesting that to read people take out of curiosity. What's, what's your earliest conscious memory? Hmm. It's an interesting question because the first thing that comes to mind are photographs and photo albums. So they're not necessarily my memory. <laughs> they are periods of time where my picture was taken um, I do have a very vivid memory in, um, that actually came to me while I was having a massage in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, the woman whose name I do not remember, I just remember she was very petite. And I, um, I met her through the spa at a hotel. And then when I would go back on business, um, I would have body work done with her. And she did cranial sacral work. And while having a massage... <clears throat> with my eyes closed, my right shoulder moved all by itself. And she asked me, what can you see? And I didn't realize I had a scene in my mind of hiding behind a chair, a big overstuffed chair in the living room when I was probably in kindergarten and my parents were arguing. And so it was fascinating uh, and then she worked on that some to let that old fear get out of my body, that old uh, memory of uh, not feeling safe, of uh, not knowing what's going to happen, of being in a volatile environment, that some of that was stuck. And so that began, you know, a, a long uh, trajectory of, of doing body work and therapy work and other kinds of work to let the past go. But that sticks with me as something of one of the first things that I remember. Because mm. it's fascinating what we, as you say, sometimes it could be sketchy and you know, we see pictures, we hear stories, but right, it's amazing what we, we, we do here. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's so, I mean, you talk there really sort of teaching and, and, you know, really therapists, that was sort of the things that you were guidance counselor. I mean, is that what you wanted to do when you grew up? Was that the original plan? Totally. I. Um, I just, you know, didn't have any uh, frame of reference. You know, I think when you're a kid and you spend all your life in school, then teachers are what you know. And I didn't know I had I had not been to therapy. Gosh, until I was in college, I went to see uh, someone in college because when my parents um, separated and divorced, my father's drinking went off the charts. And I stayed in connection with him because he was helping to pay for my college. <laughs> and, and he was my father, you know, but it was very difficult. It was very, very, very difficult. 
And so that was when I first started to seek help. It was actually when I went to Al-Anon um, as um, a family member to learn how to stay connected to him. And so um, <clears throat> that was that was also really helpful from the time I was 18 till I was 26. Um, but in the, you know, in my career, I, I, I learned when I went to a class, I was in early recovery. It was a class my therapist actually recommended to me that was about um, career planning. And I learned about following your curiosity and that your curiosity will take you where you can then experiment with things and see how things fit because careers are not a straight line. They zigzag. And I could then look back at my career and realized, oh, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> because when I was in my very first job and I was curious about, uh, and, and we, they had a terrific training program at, uh, at the Limited. So every Saturday we had a little uh, like workshop before the store opened. And we learned about how clothes were made and the fabrics and how things went together. And I thought that was fantastic. And so, you know, in my, I mean, I got a job in college because I needed to earn money, but I went back to retail and then we opened a brand new store and how fascinating it was that this is how the fixtures get put together. And this is why things flow in this way for how the customers walk around the store. And, and so I went to a training class and happened to say to the instructor, wow, how did you get to do this? This is interesting what you do. Like a month later, I got, you know, invited into the general manager's office and offered a job to move and to do what she did. But it just really came out of curiosity of, uh, of wanting to know what, what was next. And so the, you know, and that curiosity ties into my fire in the belly. That curiosity ties into what is it that I'm interested in that I like. And so when I got to be a recruiter, uh, at that department store, uh, which has been bought out now. Um, but I traveled to 11 universities around the United States, recruiting graduating seniors into the management training program. So it was, once again, the curiosity of, well, what do they like to do? What have they done? And started that, that matchmaking process. And so in doing that, once again, I'm curious about them to find out what they're curious about to help lead them, which in some ways, once again, is that therapist, is that how can I help you be happier, more satisfied, make a difference uh, and achieve your goals? And, you know, now that I'm describing it to you in this way, I'm also seeing that having my attention on what other people need and want it's still true today, is a relief from thinking about myself, wondering what I want, trying to get what I want, <laughs> that I've since learned that as I help other people get what they want, that reciprocity comes back to me in life. And so I did not consciously do that then, but I can definitely see how those curiosities played into my passion, which then connected to my fire in the belly which was, you know, just kept leading me. And from that perspective, Pete, it's effortless. It really is. It's, um, you know, I, I have a strong work ethic. 
sometimes too strong. I can, I can work long hours. Um, sometimes that doesn't um, benefit me now at this point in my life, but um, it, most of it is effortless. Most of it is, is, is drive, but not to prove something. You know, I, I don't have to prove anything anymore, I, I, but I do still have that drive to be able to help other people get what they want, be who they are, uh, achieve what they want. Out of curiosity, because I'm, I'm curious, you know, you're saying you, you sort of sold and sold the business and then actually bought back in again. What's, what's your attitude to risk? That's a good question. So I was talking to Margaret Smith, the wonderful woman who introduced us, that I used to risk everything. I used to just uh, no holds barred, uh, risk everything. And um, I, I don't do that anymore. I'm calculated now about what am I willing to risk and where where is my where's my stopping point? Where is my yeah, I'm out. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I am still willing to to risk if I see that it has multiple avenues of benefit on the other side. And that's definitely a combination now of, um, financial analysis, um, strategic counsel from people wiser than I in, in other areas than are my strengths and intuition. So it, it's definitely a tapestry of those things coming together to see like, all right, let's give it a whirl. I also uh, talked to my husband uh, about those things. I didn't used to think that way. Um, and for many years, I wasn't married. I was married the first time for four years from 28 to 32. Then I was single until I was 48. And so I often didn't have anyone I needed to, you know, confer with was my decision was my risk, my stuff. But I have definitely taken on the attitude that I, I create my own stability. I create my own security. And this, you know, ties right back right to my childhood where I didn't feel secure. Things felt volatile. I didn't feel in control of a lot of things. And so then I wanted to control everything <laughs> in many years of my life. And now I recognize, okay, the things I can control are the thoughts I think, the words I say, and the actions I take. If I now recognize that security is a value that I hold dear, then what does that look like in my life? And part of that is financial and, uh, you know, location. Like, I, I don't intend to move. This is my home. This is where I live. This is where my family is. And so then the decisions that I make impact that security, which then impacts how much risk am I willing to take? And I didn't really know my values or what was important to me until I was in my 40s. I just knew that I wanted to achieve and go and do, and I would risk anything. But sometimes that didn't really work out. <laughs> it's not for lack of trying, right? No, <laughs> true. Why didn't it work out? I think, you know, if I look back at, at the business in 2019, I think that was a very quick lesson um, that someone else wasn't going to do it for me. I really thought when I got bought out that they knew more than I did. And um, that wasn't necessarily true. 
And I also did not recognize and um, what's the word I want? Like really take on my responsibility for knowing what my audience wanted. So I wanted to make a change in the business because that's what I wanted. It's not necessarily what the clients wanted. So that was a disconnect. Um, there wasn't a good financial plan and I wasn't totally in charge of that, but I could have made that a bigger point. So there are some very practical uh, things that I can see now in retrospect from a more spiritual perspective of what was that lesson all about. It was really about the fact that I, I need to be the one who is guiding the mission I can include people, collaborate with people, but it's not the same flavor when it's not sort of my essence. I know that may be very sort of ethereal language, but there's a certain essence of incredible love and tenderness that comes through in my work that I have to own <laughs> that responsibility of holding that channel. When I sold it, it was like a different flavor, like a whole different, whole different thing. And so it's like, oh, that's not it. But I didn't know that until I went through it. Because what I did know when I was approached to be that they they saw they saw such value in what I do. That acknowledgement, that recognition, I hung up the phone after one of those phone calls and burst into tears because I felt so seen, so heard, so acknowledged that what I had been building for what I guess was seven years, they were like, oh, yeah, this is terrific. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> um and so I still feel like, oh, wow, how terrific. This is wonderful. But I don't need someone else to take it on now to do it. But in many ways, that success of, yes, I want to buy you. And, oh, no, that's not working. It did have to happen. It's sort of like when I look back at my, um, my recovery from my drinking, my ego was so crushed that I do not know how to have a satisfying, happy, healthy life and drink. <laughs> and so I need to ask for help and learn who I am, what am I really about, and how do I live a great life? That had to happen. I'm sorry. You know, like I apologize to myself and to all the people who are in the wake of that. But it was very useful. I'm a very different person now from then. And I'm a better person. And I don't know how that would have happened otherwise. I imagine this might be what happens to people who are in a car accident or who have an illness or have some life trauma event of their own that's of a different nature where they hit rock bottom or have some big realization of, well, now what? Well, I got my now what there. And in business, I got my so now what? You want to give up? You want to go get a job? You know, I always kid my husband. Well, if I don't do this, I'm just going to go work at the hardware store. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm just going to. 
I'm not even sure they would hire me, but, you know, but that's not really an option now. And those failures have taught me that it didn't kill me. It was ego bruising. And yeah, I mean, I remember saying to the neighbors, it failed and, and, and it failed, you know, like there's no more money. Like, thank goodness I've been saving money, speaking of security. <laughs> so when I was on payroll, you know, I was saving money. And then assignments came to me uh, the next two months that paid my bills, which then gave me time to, you know, get my head around getting my coaching schedule filled up again. And so it all worked out. And for me, that's a sign of a higher power. For me, that's a sign that the world is full of love, that the life is happening for me. Life is not happening to me. I am not a victim. I am a participant. So I am in the dance with life. And just because, you know, I step on my own toes or I rip the bottom of my dress doesn't mean that I'm not going to keep dancing. It just means I'm going to take stock and figure out, all right, so so what are the lessons here and now how can I go forward and what what should that look like? And if I go down the wrong road and bump into, oh, well, I'm not sure this is the right collaborator for me. And that's happened over the last year. That collaborator stops sending emails or showing up. Okay, that must not be the right one. Margaret Smith comes into my path and that turns into, oh, look, we have the same uh, drive to help these administrative professional people be more of who they are, to come into their own empowerment, their own leadership. So now we're going to launch uh, a membership business together and be able to create um, a platform for them to grow all year long because she's had these fantastic events, uh, retreats once a year for four years, but that's three or four days and then it's over. <laughs> and now how do you maintain that kind of momentum? And so then I've been coaching and getting people into um, their job and getting them onboarded and giving them a foundation and then coaching them one-on-one -on -one and creating a mastermind so they have some community. But there's a much bigger community where they can learn from each other and really see and become you know, more of who they are. So it's be you, the inner circle. And that's an exciting uh, venture to be able to see, oh, look, out of, you know, a failure in 2019, rebuild in 2020, pivot in a worldwide pandemic, and then recognize that because now the virtual world has become so ordinary, right? So common where we were joking, we're so dependent on our internet <laughs> and our video connections. But now look how we can really create community and allow uh, a support for people on an ongoing basis. And so, you know, Margaret came into my life. So it's, it's really a much more fluid way of looking at life than I ever used to do. It used to be linear, my idea, my drive, I'm gonna make it happen. Now I still have drive, I still have fire, but I am open to, okay, let's see what this looks like. So the dance now is much more freeform than choreographed. Are you where you're supposed to be today, do you believe? Oh, yes, very much so. I, I have had 
two incidents, and I was thinking about this in preparing to, to come and spend time with you, where uh, a still small voice uh, spoke to me. Not, not that I hear voices, but when I am paying attention to my intuition. In 2007, uh, when I made the decision to move from San Francisco, California to this little town in Vermont, a little voice said to me, I want to go home. And I actually had a little had a little meditation conversation with the voice, like, you know, we're not really from there. Like our you know, my parents are from there, but I have never lived there before. And it's a tiny town. And how am I gonna really do that? But I listened. And so I called my mother and my stepfather and I said, um, I think I wanna move home. But I have no idea if I can really do that. So will you help me come? for a couple of months and see what I could do. And they said, yes. And so I, I accepted that. <clears throat> and in three weeks, I knew that I wanted to stay. It still took four months to find a job, which, which was also the universe lining up perfectly about um, <clears throat> coming to work for uh, Kathy, the coach. And I was with her for six years. And so that was also the right place, even though in many ways I was underemployed. It was perfect because, number one, she highly valued all of my talent and experience. So I always felt very appreciated, which I'm very grateful for. It allowed me some time to put the pieces of my life back together. Um, and um, unbeknownst to me, um, when I lived with my mother, my stepfather for a year, when I first moved here, um, the year I, I met my the man who was going to become my husband, and when I moved out to move in with him, and then a year later we got married. When I as soon as I moved out, my mother got cancer, so it turned out I lived with my mother the last healthy year of her life, which was magical. We had dinner, you know, every night, and we went to church on Sunday, and you know, um, it was just magical. And uh, my stepfather uh, had a Christmas tree farm in Vermont. I mean, doesn't doesn't get any more picturesque than that. And so that little voice that said, I want to go home, you know, was on target. And I listened to it and worked with it and then made that switch. Um, and during the time of this business, which also, right, it evolved out of working with Kathy and listening and thinking, how can I be of service? How could I help? And then I got to a point, I don't remember exactly when that was, maybe at year five, where I had done everything I knew how to do. And I wanted to grow, but I didn't really know how to do that. And I was really quite frustrated. And I was carrying a load of sweaters down the stairs and I fell and I didn't hurt myself because I, the stairs were carpeted and I landed on all these sweaters. So it broke my fall. But the reason I fell is that I was really beating myself up in my mind about, well, what are you going to do now? Like, I can't believe you've come this far. You know, like I could hear like, Ooh, <laughs> it was just cringing. And after I fell, I had this thought went by that said, fill your mind with the word of God. And I remember like thinking, wow, that doesn't sound like a bad idea, but I don't really know what that means. And so I called my friend Vicki and um, 
I told I told Vicky and she she said, well, you know, we could read some books or, you know, study some things. And so we did. And um, we read read a book uh, by Joyce Meyer uh, called um, Creating Good Habits, Breaking Bad Habits. But it's about building building good habits and using uh, Bible passages, the word of God to be a guiding force. Well, I had never really ever done that before, but this little voice had really not ever done me wrong. You know, the other voice that says, you know, how about, how about we have a drink that, that, that voice I have to be careful of, but this other voice, I was like, wow, well, that has turned out to be such a, a comfort that I am in the right place. Like this, this is my life. I, I want to be married. I found my husband. I'm happily married. I never had my own children. I never wanted to have my own children. In fact, when my girlfriends would would have their baby clocks go off and couldn't wait to get married and have babies, I was like, oh yeah, this never happened to me. <laughs> I have never experienced what you're going through. I just wanted to work. And so that's just, you know, been my fate. But when I got married at 48 years old, I inherited two grown, beautiful sons uh, and a daughter-in-law and what is now two grandchildren. So I'm delighted. Um, in fact, I said to my family at one time, the nicest thing anyone ever uh, said to me was Grammy. And so now the whole family calls me Grammy, and to which my girlfriends think is um, shocking because I'm like, well, you know, I'm a really hot Grammy, but <laughs> it's still pretty cool to, um, you know, to be someone's grandmother and to be someone's stepmother and to be someone's wife. Um, so to be here, to be here now, to be this person is very rewarding. And, you know, I, I've also been able to make amends to live a different life now than, than the legacy. So I was estranged from my, my biological father, my first, my first father at the time he died because I was drinking. He was him. And, you know, I don't, I'm not proud of that. I don't like that, but that's the reality of the family was that it was very difficult to be in a relationship with him. And at some point I stopped and then my life became a train wreck. And, and so that's just the way it was. So that was in 1999 when he died and I got sober in 2001. So in my recovery, I have been of service to people who are dying. And I'm not sure why that's not hard for me, but it's not hard for me. So two of my friends in recovery and I, along with uh, three college friends, took care of another woman in recovery along with her family. Um, she died at 37 years old and we stayed, you know, all the way through till, till her passing. And I stay in touch to this day with her family and love them like my own. Um, and then when I moved here and my mother got cancer, it just so happened, you know, if you believe in just so happened that my job with Kathy had me four days in the office. And on Fridays, I didn't, she didn't want me to come to the office. She didn't have clients that day. And so I would check voicemail and email from home and forever wherever I was. So I could go to doctor's appointments with my mother's on Fridays and help her through her cancer and then hire caregivers. And then when my mother passed away, 
Um, I was able to care for my stepfather and be in charge of his caregivers. And my one of my stepsisters had passed away from cancer. Otherwise, she would have taken care of her father. And my other stepsister lives in Florida. And so, and she and I work beautifully together. And she was very involved, but she wasn't local. You know, I was. So I was able to live out the person that I really want to be, the person I wish I could have been now. And so to, to have that sense of peace, to make those conscious decisions, that was not possible when I was um, living in my addiction, when I was um, selfish and self-centered and cared more about my ambition and about how I looked and what I did than about other people and taking care of other things. And unfortunately, that's a common trait of the illness of alcoholism is they're just common, may not be for everyone who has that affliction, but it's very common and I certainly had it. And so the humbling that I had um, was useful so that now I'm able to receive, you know, from the energy that I give um, and then be able to see, okay, so now what else can I do for someone else? Or how else can I share this? Or who else now can I collaborate with and involve? And it does, it does require sacrifice. So I still think I sacrifice some of my relationships. I'm not, I don't get to go to every soccer game or, you know, when we had soccer games and, you know, I, I don't get to see my friends as often as I would like because I work a lot, but I've come to be at peace with the fact that I do the best I can. You know, I make the best decisions that I can and I, I do pay attention to where are my priorities. And then if I get, you know, a little, if I get, if I get a little off, then I know that, you know, I can just make some changes to come back and not beat myself up over it. Cause I really am trying to do the best I can at, at every stage of it. Where, where are you at in terms of who you are today and your true self? Are you one and the same or is there a bit of a gap? I think that is always evolving. You know, I was thinking about, um, like, I didn't do this all by myself, right? I didn't learn how to do this just for my own head. So I was introduced to all these different teachers. And so I do think that this is the layers of the onion that just keeps blossoming. That I'm not going to graduate from self-discovery and from, you know, personal um, actualization and um, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? I mean, I have gotten the food, shelter, clothing. I, I am working toward the self-actualization, but that's a process. When, um, when I was getting divorced, so this was um, in the early 90s, my mother got breast cancer at the same time. And I was at the chiropractor's office and the... I'm not sure if she was a technician, I guess, that came in to check on me before I saw the doctor. Asked, you know, how, so how, how are you? <laughs> and I just burst into tears and, you know, sort of unloaded on her. And, and um, she, you know, put me over by the heat lamp and, you know, said, well, the doctor will be right with you. But when I came out of that session, she had um, a shoebox of cassette tapes that she gave to me. And I, I couldn't even tell you who was on those tapes, but I listened to all of them. 
And I picked up the affirmation, something wonderful is going to happen to me today. I have been using that affirmation since I'll say 1991. So what is that? 2001, 12, 30 years. So it's shocking that's 30 years ago, but <clears throat> I, think, I think that's the right number. And um, so I, I learned about affirmations. I learned about uh, how to get a hold of my mind, which is, you know, with just running wild and not, not always and not kind a lot of the time. So that was the beginning of that. And um, I lived in Marin County and north of San Francisco, sort of the personal development, you know, personal, personal actualization capital of the, of the United States. And I was introduced to um, Gerald Jampolsky and his book, um, there's something like there's either fear or love. There are only two things. And if it isn't love, it's some form of fear. I had never looked at life like that before of, huh, <laughs> and recognizing all the ways in which fear was trying to control and manage me. And if I really wanted to have more peace, more contentment, more joy, those are aspects of love. So that has taken and is still a practice of pulling out, you know, not having fear run my life and being involved in therapy to learn how to let go of the fact that okay, you know, I had a nice childhood and I had a childhood that, you know, involved disappointments and difficulties like many people did, but I wasn't going to let that run my life forever. But that took work. <laughs> that took time. That took individual one-on-one -on -one therapy. That took two group therapy uh, sessions. And the name of it was just poignant, something like... Um, I don't know. It was there was no place to hide. I can't think of the name of the, the the group at this time, but it was two my therapist, another therapist, and like five participants. I had never been done anything like it. We actually enacted scenes from our past together with each other's permission and role played out um, someone's father, someone's mother, and many of the participants had much more violent and difficult childhoods than my own. Um, but we were, and, and things that happened in adulthood, but we were able to help heal each other from the fact that that didn't have to run our lives anymore. Um, and that was incredibly freeing. And I went to seminars that taught me about the technology of using your mind and about co-creating with life. And I was introduced to Louise Hay and her mirror work and, uh, and her affirmations and her self-talk. And so I think when you just layer, you know, these kind of things, then it changed me. You know, I, I let it change me. And then having a belief in a higher power, whether um, whatever that is for someone. And for myself, I think it still evolves about, well, what does that mean? And, and who wrote these books? And <laughs> is everything in this true? And, you know, I still have doubt and, and have disbelief, but I choose to believe that life is happening for me and not to me, that I am not a victim, that I am a co-creator, I am participating. I, I like the dance. I, I used to dance in, in high school. And in my early earlier life more, but I like that imagery of having an exchange where I'm learning and participating. I have I have self-will, I have the ability to make decisions, but 
having the courage to make those decisions and then, you know, stand by and watch, well, so, okay, what are the consequences of that decision? And so now what decision do I want to make? I also don't think I used to realize that just because I make one decision doesn't mean I can't change my mind. I used to put so much pressure on myself that as soon as I make that decision, well, that's it. Well, but it's not. It's, it's, you make the best decision that you can with the information that you have at the time. And then you see how it turns out. And then you evaluate again. And if it feels, if it seems right, well, then you can keep going. But I didn't, I didn't know how to do that for so long in my life. It's so, it's such a relief, Pete. It's such a relief. There's a word you use, just noticed a couple of times and it comes down to call the words control. Mm. What does that mean for you? Control has meant um, safety and security. And in, in my life in recovery is where I have learned the only things I can really control are the thoughts I think, the words I say, and the actions I take. I have spent so much time trying to control things that I cannot control, which takes so much energy and is so draining. Um, and that too is, a, is a, I'll say a habit, a practice, a discipline. You know, I, for, I still forget. I still want to control things outside. Um, I was taught the experience um, the reference of, I can only control what's inside my hula hoop. So inside that two, three foot circle, I stand in the middle of it. And these are the things that I can control. So it's important for me to know what I can control and then take responsibility for that. At the same time, the freedom has come with, I'm going to do the best I can in the moment. And then let's see. And then then let's see if I need to make a different decision about the things I can control. <laughs> because I think that exchange of power of, well, what's mine? What's yours? I think that happens all day long, all the time. And so it, it is a responsibility on one hand, and it is sort of my magic wand <laughs> on the other hand of, all right, well, then let's see what I can do with this. Because I've resisted controlling myself, wanting to control all these other things outside of me, it seemed easier, even though it doesn't really work. So I'm committed now to not being manipulative, not forcing something, not trying to get my way when it may not be the best way. So if those are my values, then what does that look like in how I conduct myself and how am I in my relationships? So if, you know, if we're going to be friends, if we're going to be family, if we're going to be collaborators and work together, it has to work for both of us or it's not going to work for either of us. And I really try to come from that all the time. And I'm by no means perfect at it. You know, I still make mistakes and misjudge and fall short. But I do know that I, you know, am still looking for what's my part. What am I, what am I supposed to do in this situation? And then what am I not able to control? It's not my job. It's not my responsibility. And so then let's see, 
Let's see what they're going to do with it. Let's see. Can I make a request? You know, this is vocabulary I also never used to have. I can make a request. <laughs> I can state my opinion. I can ask for what I need. You know, I didn't used to so consciously have access to that until I went through all the different kinds of learning and experiences that I've had where I realized like, oh, if I have a need and I haven't actually asked for that to be filled, why do I think that they're going to figure that out and know that and get me what I need? Instead, I could just say, you know, I need to be left alone for two hours so I can hang out with Pete. <laughs> you know, like I can ask for that. And then someone says, okay, sure, have fun. But I didn't used to be that clear about it. And now, you know, that control is not meant in a way of that's manipulative. It's just really meant in a way that's responsible. Is that a, I can't quite place it. Is that sort of knowing yourself or knowing your values or pleasing others or pleasing people or, or I can't, I can't quite pin it down. Does that make any sense? Yes. Um, people pleasing is definitely on my radar for myself. Mm. I have that tendency. And that's, that's a, a challenge I'm actively engaged in. Where am I making decisions that are really perhaps not in the best interest of myself or in the relationship, but I don't want to disappoint? but I don't want to let them down, but I'm afraid to ask for what I need, that I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of criticism. So as my business is growing, as my life is expanding and I'm doing more things like this with you, um, I am very keenly aware of my fear of criticism, my fear of you know not showing up of, of whatever all that is, but it's going to have to be okay because <laughs> I'm still going to do the best I can. Um, and and look look for it in the moment and then still get honest, right? Because you can only be as honest with other people as you are with yourself. Mm -hmm. So self-honesty takes uh, courage. And I have proven to myself that I'm courageous because I've, I've done, you know, cleaning up my life from, from 25 years of not living very consciously, it's taken a lot of courage. When I, when I got sober, I had $50,000 worth of tax debt. And um, it took seven years to get in that trouble and took seven years to get out of that trouble. But it was an incredible teacher about patience and personal responsibility and uh, doing the next right thing. So even filling out the paperwork to get it all taken care of. Sometimes I could only fill out my name and address and I would feel sick and I would have to close the folder and come back to it tomorrow. And, um, you know, cleaning up after a bankruptcy and trying to get a, you know, a credit card or trying to buy. And those were embarrassing, shameful, difficult things to admit I had gotten myself into trouble. But I just did them one step at a time, and that took facing my myself, and and it didn't kill me, and it worked out. And I've realized that 
lots of other people have those things that happen to them and they're afraid to talk about it and they don't know how to get out of it because I didn't get out of it all by myself. You know, speaking of all the teachers, you know, I I ended up seeing a, a money counselor who helped me, uh, Karen McCall. She's written a number of books and, and now she teaches other people to be financial recovery coaches. And when I started my, so that was, um, you know, in the early 2000s. When I started my business and money started to come in, I started to get nervous. <laughs> and so I hired a money coach and I worked with her at least the first five years of my business just to help me get the discipline of uh, forecasting, saving, saving for taxes, making sure that the government and I were on very good terms of whose money is this. And so, you know, there is a humility that, I was graced with after the humiliations. <laughs> so I found a number of those failures humiliating. So in, in the self-honesty of looking at, all right, so that was a bad practice. Like that was not the way to conduct myself. Okay, now what am I going to do? There's courage in cleaning it up and doing the next right thing. And there's um, then the humbleness that I now need to practice those things. And if I need help again to get prepared, so now I'm going into another phase of growth in my business. So I'm working with people about forecasting, about what's an appropriate budget for this. You know, I, I don't, I've not budgeted for this, you know, advertising, marketing, social media, Google AdWords, you know, like how, how do I plan for this? Because it's okay for me to not know everything. Why should I think that I'm supposed to know things that I've not experienced, right? It's kind of funny when I think about my own thoughts of, well, you ought to know how to do that. Well, why? <laughs> I have a business degree, but I, there were no Google AdWords and, you know, in those days. So I think that, you know, those things put together has me, you know, realize that I, I am where I am and I'm going to keep, you know, chipping away at how can I be more honest with myself so that I can make better decisions so I can have more satisfaction. And, and knowing that about myself has really been, you know, the compass of being able to, to know where the, the guardrails are on the road. When I first got sober, I remember talking to my therapist about, I'm afraid I'll get, I'm afraid I'll make bad decisions again. I'm afraid I won't have learned my lessons. And she said to me, you won't do those same things again because you've changed the way you, you live. You don't keep secrets. You ask for advice. You're honest with yourself to the best of your ability. And um, that's how you protect yourself from having your mind pull you in the ditch again. So when those things come up, you're going to say, well, huh, let's see. Let's take a look at that <laughs> before we're impulsive and do that thing, you know, that I have learned that... <clears throat> The God of my understanding who lives in my heart does not jerk me into make, taking action. That loving presence um, whispers to me and is perfectly patient for me to evaluate my options and then take action. It is 
my ego, you know, the devil, whatever you want to call that other force. It's like, do it. Come on, make that call. Have, have that happen. Get it right now. Like, yeah, that voice is not often has my best interest at heart. It's one thing to have enthusiasm. It's another thing to have a sense of urgency that is um, pushing me. I don't have to do that anymore. I can then extract the enthusiasm and then place it to where I feel confident to, to, you know, to do that next right thing. Are you, are you clear at who you are? Yes. I also think I'm evolving, but who I am, you know, I'm, I'm someone who values kindness, uh, acceptance, generosity. I, I'm someone who is ambitious to achieve and I have big dreams and big goals of how to help people with, with that. I, I have, I have not been rich in time <laughs> other than the time I invest a lot in, in my work. So I'm working on uh, allowing other people to be rich in that time <laughs> and come work with me so that I can, um, write the books and um, and training materials and collaborate with more people and bring in you know new clients that could use what we do. So part of that is shifting. Um, but I'm very clear that I'm uh, I'm strong in my vulnerability, that I'm fierce in my love, and I am happy with who I am, but I also don't feel done. <laughs> I don't feel, I feel like I'm still, I feel like these experiences of, you know, being on podcasts, of um, collaborating with Margaret Smith, of uh, hiring, uh, uh, you know, a coach to come work with me and, um, we're building a, a brand new service in the business that one of the people who works with me invented. And so it's like, okay, wow, this is wonderful. And how needed this is, um, you know, she's figured out that she can help real estate agents document all their workflow process. And this is something that seems to never get done because everyone in the business is busy doing the business. And so then the agents are, are afraid that someone will leave their team because they hold in their mind how the business operates. Well, now we're realizing, oh, we can document this. And so we just are about to hire a second person to come in and build this division. Well, all these, all these um, experiences change people. They change me. Going through this process keeps changing me. So I'm in many ways so grateful that this is happening to me at this stage in my life and in my career. Because I think when I was 30 or 35, I would have been threatened that they were going to be better than me. They were going to be smarter than me. They were going to do. But now at this stage of my life, I realize, oh, they have skills I don't have. They have compliments to what I want to have done, but are not my strength. And so, therefore, my role is shifting in the, in the business, which mm. in some ways is changing who I am because it's allowing me to let other people shine, 
to create a forum for other people to shine, to um, provide a greater variety of skills and talents and strengths to then help clients see their own talents and strengths. It's like, wow, this is turning into truly a tapestry where before it felt more like this was me and what I could do in my business and my flavor. But now, right, like I got the seasoning packet, not not just the oregano. <laughs> I got the I got the whole mixed bag, which is exciting. Very exciting. It's kind of yeah, you almost you get to be involved without you know, sort of carrying all the baggage, you know, you can be yes. intrinsically involved in multiple business, be non-threatening, just be super connected, creative, useful. Yes. Yeah. And once again, I think that goes back to if I thought that I did it the best way, and if I thought I had to control everything, I would be in my own way of allowing that to happen. Hmm. But I don't have to be everything. I don't have to control everything. I have a responsibility for which I am willing to accept and participate in. There are going to be things that I have never done before and don't know. So now I know to get good counsel. I hope I don't have to spend as much on lawyer fees as I did last year. But, <laughs> you know, okay, if I need lawyers, I'll get lawyers, you know, but because I want to do things well and do things right. But I, I'm okay with, and I've seen the power of creating the vision. This is our mission. These are the values that we believe in. Therefore, these are the guiding principles for how we run the business together. Hmm. I now see in action how that works, which is something I teach and preach. <laughs> um, but I didn't have to do it so much when it was just me or just me and people who were in administration behind me. But now I'm really having to, you know, walk my talk, basically, mm. practice what I preach. And so, so we're doing it. And I'm realizing, oh, I have to document my systems because now I have people coming in and changing roles in the company. And so while the brain trust of information is still here, I need to also protect my business in a way that I didn't have to when it was just coming out of my brain and my mouth. And so I, in that way, live in a parallel universe with my clients. So I have enormous empathy for what they are going through because I am going through it too. So I just need to stay one step ahead far enough <laughs> so that I can show them, see, this is how it works. This is how it worked in my business. You know, how do you want to have it work in your business? And so I, I love that um, to be able to really be an example and uh, provide guidance. Um, I saw a cartoon sort of diagram on Facebook some time ago. I'm not remember what the event was, but it was a uh, a cartoon of, uh, girls, women, female people in particular, reaching down and, and helping the next one like come up the ladder so that we were all all helping each other. And I, I love that about um, the women and girls, but I also just love that image about people, you know, that we're all just helping each other get to the next place, not forgetting that I was just there where you are. So come on, let me show you here. And then they may actually have something to show me so that there's wonderful relationship. There's, and this, you know, this is a, this leads into a much bigger topic, Pete, about social justice and equality and equity. There's nothing to be afraid of because people are different. 
because someone has different skills than I have doesn't mean that I need to be threatened because I'm less than because they're different than me. It's like, oh, no, this is the beauty of it. So the fact that, you know, you know, finance and I don't know it so well, or, you know, marketing and I don't know that so well, or you're purple or orange or green or black or yellow or red doesn't really matter because it's supposed to be different. We're not supposed to all be the same. So we're actually weaving all of that social justice um, into my business, into the practice. Um, and, you know, on a more granular level, I we recognize that this impacts real estate, which is our niche, that having how, how we talk about properties, how we describe things, um, the ways in which neighborhoods are represented, how showings are conducted impacts people's ability to own real estate and gain that as a part of their wealth portfolio. And so we're doing what we can in, in that to be able to educate and, and open the door to that conversation, participate in that conversation so that we can also make a difference on a, on a different layer of of that complexity inside yes we have checklists and yes we can you know help you hire people and yes we can help you be efficient and communicate well and you know there's a, a bigger conversation as a part of that i mean all those traits that you talk about and sort of your own journey i mean it show it shows great resilience really that you continue to to you know get back up to perform want to excel yourself to new ideas to create to, to move on does it is resilience a big thing for you it is and and i find it kind of mysterious pete like why do some people have it and other people give up so easily or or not have the belief in themselves or or in that fact and so i i am humbled by it because I don't really know why. <laughs> I mean, I have that. Is it the is it the fire in the belly? Uh, is it stubbornness? Is it determination? Um, is it, you know, I wish that I had been willing to make mistakes earlier in my life. Like my mother, you know, wondered, wanted me to take figure skating. Well, I wouldn't take figure skating because I was afraid of looking stupid and falling down. Well. You can't get good at figure skating, I imagine, until you fall down. <laughs> you have to, must have to try before you do the double sal cow thing, right? Like you must have to really skate and practice. But I wasn't willing to do that. And so at this point in my life, you know, I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I can. The mistakes didn't kill me. It, it wasn't the end of the world. And I don't know what I thought was going to happen that being embarrassed or not or say or admitting you didn't know or having a failure, like I, I now look back at it with almost humor. How did I think I was going to get to success without failure? I think that's innocence and perhaps some ignorance. And, you know, I, um, so Kathy, the woman I worked for had all kinds of really great books and would often talk about sports figures and other people, right? Other entrepreneurs that had gained success, but they went through terrible defeat, even in inventions like the light bulb, right? Or electricity or, uh, you know, um, Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, the, the chain of restaurants in the United States, you know, they, the story is that he went door to door and no one wanted his chicken, <laughs> 
And then finally, someone wanted to sell his chicken. And so now, right, there's this huge chain, which I imagine is international, that to be able to get Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so all those stories of defeat, um, where you even see athletic champions who will, you know, you'll see their record being noted of how many hits they had or how many baskets or how many. But then if you hear the 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 athlete story, they'll also tell you that meant they went home because they didn't win a game or they made 400 free throws before they got one in the basket and they practiced to be able to do that. I don't think I ever equated in my own journey until those things happened. Oh, this is totally normal. <laughs> this is how you get to success. And it really then depends on, well, how bad do you want it? Or how bad do you want to make a difference? And if, if I was to give up, well, then what was I going to do? Go back? Work at the hardware store? I didn't really like that option either. So sometimes it just became like, well, <laughs> I don't want to do that either. So now what? And each time, each time I would go through some experience, some disappointment, or or something that worked okay, but it wasn't quite it. Well, now what? I would just keep going. And so I think there are a few factors there. One is I have uh, more consciously now than perhaps earlier in my life, surround myself with people who are fantastic support. So the naysayers, the people that don't relate, the people that are like, yeah, yeah, no, I don't hang out with them. It's okay for them to be that way. That's fine. But that's not my, it's not my jam. <laughs> that's not where I like to live. And so I like to live in what's possible. I just find it more fun. It's more engaging. It's more exciting. Uh, it's happier. So, so I have surrounded myself. What's that expression? You become like the five people you hang out the most with. So I like to pick those people to, to hang out with who are like, yeah, all right, we'll try it. Well, how'd that go? Well, what do you think we could do next? You know, like, so I, I, I have, I've done that. Um, my, my husband is one of those people um, for a long time. He probably would still say, I'm not entirely sure what she does. <laughs> Not sure I really understand, but yeah, you go get him, girl. Like, you know, he he still, uh, you know, and even in the failure of the business last year, when I needed to go admit to him what had happened and what where we were about it, he was freaked out for like 24 hours, which was a-okay. And then he came to me and he said, do you know how to get us out of this? And I said, I'm going to figure it out. He said, are you going to prevent this from happening again? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> okay, then. <clears throat> so that trust was huge. Huge. Because it, it was scary. <clears throat> but, okay, we're smart. <laughs> we're, we're, we got great people. Um, in fact, he, uh, he buys lottery tickets every now and then. And because um, you got to play to win, right? So at one point, the lottery was, I don't know, something crazy, like $500 million. And he said, oh, I don't know, that's too much money. And I said, oh, I don't want you to ever say or even think that again. <laughs> because if we won $500 million, we 
would do a very good job. We would find excellent counselors to advise us. We could make an incredible difference in our community, in the world. We would do wonderful things with that. I don't want you to ever think that something is too big, too happy, too great. There's no such thing. So he has never said it again. <laughs> he was like, oh, all right. Um, but, you know, I, so I think it's okay to <clears throat> have people around you that aren't like you, but they are still a supporter about that to be able to really, you know, be who you are, to really take risk, to, to really strive and be resilient. That, that that's what the resiliency comes out of is out of that ooze, you one more, one more step, just one more step. Talk to me about hope. Mm. I hope is an expression of love for me. <clears throat> um, it is um, probably on the other side of the hope coin is acceptance. Um, hope is not manipulation to try to get something to happen that isn't real or isn't possible. Um, what comes to mind is sometimes in the death and dying, people hope, you know, that they'll get better or hope that it will turn out differently when the acceptance of they're going to die. And the hope that they're at peace, the hope that they're calm about that, the hope that they know they're loved, that they're forgiven, um, is the best we can do, but not be in denial about the reality to be in acceptance of the reality. So from acceptance, there's, for me, there's still hope about whatever is next about a situation. So if I, I, I have lost hope, but I have learned that it really just has to be a flicker, a little tiny flicker of in the darkness of, of the difficulties of when, you know, when my mother had breast cancer or when I, I recognized, you know, that I needed to, to get divorced from in my first marriage. It's a nice man. We had been friends. We probably shouldn't have gotten married. He deserved to be with someone who wanted to be with him. And so I recognized that that wasn't me. Those were dark times where um, I didn't know how to handle that, to have to have the to lose my job and to be fired in 1994. I mean, I deserved to be fired. My alcoholism had um, impacted my mood and my actions and it, it was not a stable. I was not a stable person. And so they should have let me go. And they did a beautiful job. <laughs> they were kind to me. They were generous, but I needed to go. And it was just, I was destroyed because as I've already been sharing, right? I, my career was everything to me. So that was brutal. <clears throat> but I still wanted to, 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 make a difference. I still wanted to live in my gifts. I still wanted to achieve. I still wanted to feel useful. So 
I've also learned that it's okay to be sad and depressed for a day, maybe a weekend. But then I got to nurture the flicker of hope just a little bit more. And so who can I talk to? What can I read? What can I watch? Um, that I, I pray and meditate, that I spend time in nature, that I take better care of myself. And in that, that flame grows. I learned an expression in early recovery to look for evidence of a higher power. And my friend, um, whose nickname is Little Robin, taught me that expression to look for evidence. And so what that means is it's basically a gratitude and watching for when things go well. So something wonderful is going to happen to me today and start counting what are all the wonderful things that happened. And you might need to get down to the fact that it started raining after I brought in the groceries. <laughs> and I started collecting evidence. I lived in, you know, the big city of San Francisco. And so I used to ask for parking. So I parked my car on the street often. I still had a car and uh, I would pray for parking. And then I would, when I would get the parking, I would say, thank you to whatever that was where I found a parking space. And then I would sometimes pull up to a parking meter that already had coins in it, that already had money on the meter. There's another evidence. Uh, and so it became a habit where that fed my hope that good things were gonna happen, that life is really looking out for me, that I really am able to, to keep going to make a gratitude list that even in the midst of, of anything, I can blink and swallow. I have legs, I have arms. Uh, after some of the living conditions I put myself through, I'm still grateful for a clean towel and warm water and soap and, uh, and, uh, and a home and a roof over my head and warm, since I live in New England, and warm boots, you know, like that I have. So <clears throat> that kind of gratitude feeds my hope that, you know, there's always something to be grateful for and, and tomorrow is a new day. What can I, what can I do today to just get me one increment closer? You know, this year I read the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. And um, and I use his journal and I'm 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 not great at tracking my habits, but he's made a difference in my life that I just have to make incremental little changes, just have a few little wins every day. And those little habits build and change the trajectory. So he uses the example that if an airplane, two airplanes take off from Los Angeles to go across the country and one keeps shifting a little bit, it'll end up in Washington, D.C. instead of New York. So you just make little adjustments to either stay on track or alter the track. And that feels really doable. If I think I have to be all that, you know, in a bag of chips now, I got to change everything and be a whole new me. That feels um, that doesn't feel possible. So that takes hope the wrong direction. But these practices, these habits, these attitudes, these way of thinking, these supports keep the spiral spinning, which keeps that flicker of hope alive that something wonderful is going to happen to me today.
lovely lovely way of looking at it it's very refreshing just to <laughs> be open and be grateful and yeah be looking out for great things yes mm. i love those photographs of the flowers that you know grow up out of the concrete you know that they're just just you know they found a way to get up through and um, in uh, the coast of California, I imagine this is true on lots of rugged coastlines of different countries where the trees grow right out of the rocks over the water. You know, like that is amazing. And many times in life, I get it. It feels like that, that we're just, you know, if, if you're really determined to shine, then you can do it anywhere. And I, I am working on having peace and even joy in the midst of difficulty, that feels sort of like the next level <laughs> of uh, things to work on. But I, I'm not trying to, I'm try, trying to wish difficulty on myself. Mm. Yeah, it's always, yeah, it is interesting. It's almost if it came too easy, it's sort of, we, we put up more questions, don't we? We don't necessarily just accept. Yes, just accept and allow and receive, mm. which mm. are very feminine sort of energy qualities as opposed to do and make it happen. And so having that yin yang balance is um, it's easier for me to be the doer than the receiver, mm. but I, well, I'm working on it. Working it's always interesting. Some people will see that the conscious energy is, you know, the conscious mind has been the male and the, the sort of the unconscious, the female. And I always find that interested, interesting, mm. I suppose, just to, to lean into the female energy to just accept and, but. and allow mm. and then still have have that direction still have action still have the motion but recognize that it was also very freeing and i don't really remember where i learned this that i'm responsible for the action but i'm not responsible for the result because i don't control that i can influence it but it has really helped me to 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 take that on that it's it's my role to, to have action, but then what happens as a result of that is information, data, um, but that's what I receive, and then I can respond accordingly to, okay, so now what? And yay, thank you, no matter what it was, even, even the yucky stuff, even the hard stuff, even the stuff that wasn't exactly what I wanted, it still has value. No, it is. It's great. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of being balanced, I suppose, maybe the right way of putting it amongst it all. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I'd like to talk about this, uh, a, a nice segue into, you know, what does this look like for, for our business and our clients? Because we've talked about some really wonderful, right, concepts and, and story. But then I think in, in entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs that are driven to be real estate agents who are then driven to create companies and businesses and become employers, that, for them, this journey of what is it like to be your own your own agent and then create a company, right? And then have this vision and then have roles of what everybody does, that they too do not have to do this all by themselves. And that some of their advisors are going to be good at some aspects of that. And then they're going to need or want other advisors. And that's part of what now we can see like, oh, we can help you with that. We can help you design your organization. 
We can help you hire your administrative staff. We can help you onboard them. We can help you document your systems. We can help train and coach your administrative staff. And then Margaret and I can help that administrative staff become an empowered leader in their own right so that you can count on them, so that they come to you with ideas, so that you're not the only person who's who's having to come up with everything. You're the decision maker as the owner. But you don't have to know every aspect. You can have those advisors come to you from inside your company and from outside your company. And then you as the owner get to decide how you want to implement any of that in your business because it's always your business. But but what I've learned in my life, I'm now applying inside my business so that I can provide this for other people and be that connection for other people. So uh, my bookkeeper you know, Will Hepworth from Shining Light Bookkeeping is doing a fantastic job working with agents and he loves working with them. So he wants to do more of that. And I have uh, a website developer that is putting together a package for the agents. And we have uh, Leilani Query from BeTheChangeHR.org. She will do employee handbooks and handle those kinds of employee and law issues. You know, and Vanessa Rosenblum from Pro REA Staffing and I developed Hire Lab, the training course together about how to hire. But Vanessa has this fantastic uh, retained search company that hires real estate assistants all over North America. Like this, you know, this collaboration is so important so that the real estate agents don't have to go find all of these resources themselves, you know, that they have a place to come where we can help, you know, create all that foundation and that support for you so that um, you know you you can build the business that you want to my i named my business inspired for results very consciously but i haven't really marketed it that way my name became the business uh, because my reputation preceded me and so we we let we let that fly <laughs> so my website became kathleenmetcalf.com and then Kathleen Metcalf coaching and training. But inside of this and all these collaborations, I can see now Inspired for Results is the perfect name for my business because we're all inspired to create results with people. And so when I met Margaret Smith and she and I wanted to create and now are about to launch in, in January, the BU, the Inner Circle membership for real estate admins to, to be empowered leaders inside their own roles, and in their own lives, that all of that comes together. Um, David Breckheimer from Cultivate Wins has a fantastic transaction management. He's also inspired to do that with people and to have them be the best they can be and have a compassionate life, you know, that is as successful as they want. So all of this comes together from our, our individual experiences, you know, our shared experiences now come together to be of service to people so they can, you know, have what they need on their journey because everyone's journey is going to be unique. It's it's a very it's a very clever model, you know, really that you can you know, you can really take a cross section rather than having one person as you say they're excellent at real estate or whatever, but then they try and pull up pull up skills and they sort of hire in somebody here there and everywhere which, you know, the skill set is only what's whatever's within the company whereas you can take a cross-section they can cross-pollinate knowledge they can you know sort of really do and you can have the best of each best of both worlds right that's what's coming through anyway and it's an abundance mindset pete Mm. there's plenty of business for everyone there's plenty of work for everyone there's plenty of opportunity to contribute and and none of 
uh, I don't have to own it all. They don't have to own it all. That w- it really is um, a highly collaborative model that is working fantastically to be able to be in, um, I think this might be if in our zone of genius is from the book, The Big Leap, <laughs> to be in the zone of genius and then just layer that all together so that people can get what they need. Um, and, and we love to refer and supply that, but it is a combination of each person's zone of genius, you know, coming together to, to be on the menu, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's great. I love it. And I, I love that service and, and to be able to do and to help so many people. It's, you know, it's a credit to you. So yes, well done. It's Thank you. It's fast, very satisfying. It's exciting. Yeah. Fun times. Absolutely fun times. There's it lots is. going on. Yes. Thomas, what, what do you, what's your leisure and pleasure when you're not working and going crazy? What are you doing? You said you were a foodie and you love to cook. Yes. And so I, I'm doing some baking, um, uh, this month, I'm looking forward to to doing some of that. I have the I have the big KitchenAid mixer out to uh, to get some baked things happening, and uh, my husband and I love to snowshoe since we have winter seven months of the year where we live, so we like to be able to play out in the snow and we you know enjoy spending time with our grandkids. Um, but right now, right with a worldwide pandemic, we have not been able to to do that very often, which is challenging. Even though they're like 11 miles from where we live, but we like to do that. We, um, I have, we have two cats. We, we had a, a dog. We, we lost him uh, this past May, but we're starting to talk about new, new dog or dogs in our life uh, soon. We're renovating our house still. We still have renovation work to do. My husband does a beautiful vegetable garden in the summer. So we, we have gardening to do. It's a nice life. Love it. Love it. Very, sounds very idyllic. You know, which is great. It's a great place to be. It is yeah. a great place to be. It's been, um, it's been in some ways a long time coming and in other ways, you know, I feel blessed that I just tr- keep trying to do the next right thing. And, and here's, here's what it's turned out to be, which is just mm. sort of magical sometimes. Absolutely. If you were to describe your fire in the belly in one or two words, what would it be? Mm. Relentless passion. Love it. <laughs> right there. What message are you do you want to leave with people? Keep going. Keep going. Keep learning. Keep trying. Nurture, nurture that flicker of hope that no matter what, you know, you are whole and complete and loved. And the human experience is precious. It is mysteriously difficult at times, but you know it is it is worth it to keep to keep going. Mm. So much is possible. I mean, you are so much resilience and hope, and and there is this so much there that just you know really sort of yeah, to credit to you. So well, yes, and to find your people, like you know, hang out, hang out with us, mm. <laughs> hang out with people who have this because it makes the road a whole lot easier. That no matter what, it's it's okay. We're you know we're we're going to help dust you off. And and when I say us, I mean just people who have this, hmm. you know, who come who come from this place. Yeah. That those people are everywhere. But find them and and create your circle of them because it makes it has made the world of difference for me. Hmm. No one that 
get the hell out of your own way or get the hell out of the way full stop <laughs> like, and then find your people find your people love it Kathleen it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you thank you so much for coming on today and I listen I wish you all the best you too Pete I admire you thank you for what you do thank you well that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly you know this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys and boy oh boy sometimes it is personal it's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on with loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on if you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly please reach out to us so we can share their journey lessons and successes so all that's left to say is have a great day live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you 